0: Providing tips and guidance to help you grow your business. You're listening to the Advisor to Advisor podcast. Advice for advisors from advisors.
1: Welcome to Hanson McLean's Advisor to Advisor. I'm Scott Hanson. And I'm Pat McLean. Glad you are taking some of your time to listen to this podcast. We are excited about our podcast because we're going to talk a little bit about where this industry is
0: going. Yeah, and it's always the question is, What what changes and it is changing fast. The wirehouses are reshaping themselves. The government, how they view our industry, is uh, constantly thinking about uh, how it it should be regulating us. Uh, There's mergers and acquisitions going on. There's supposedly
1: roll-ups. I mean, there's talk of some of of the wirehouses becoming uh, fiduciaries, suddenly becoming RAs. Yeah, it is. It's it's crazy. And it's funny, Pat. I remember we were we've been independent for twenty some odd years, and it used to be being independent the People would kind of, the, the big firms, the brokers kind oh, of mock they, you. Yeah, they would. And, and now they, it's the other way around, right? They, they would look <laughs> at
0: you. Um, oh, that was before most of the big firms were all owned by banks, though. Well, that's true. How would you like to be a broker at Wells Fargo? Oh, right I think that right now, wow. first, culturally, it's probably a little bit different. But it's, the business is changing. It has the changed. The business is changing. And that's actually why we're excited today that we have Chip Rome. That's right.
1: Chip Rome is the, of course, I think many of you uh, who are listening to this have heard of Chip. Managing partner of Tiburon Strategic Advisors, probably the most quoted person in our industry, if I'm guessing. Chip, welcome to Hanson McLean's Advisor to Advisor.
2: Uh, thank you, Scott.
1: Yeah, glad you are. Uh, took a little time to be with us. Yeah, Chip, it's good to hear from you. And Chip has an interesting background. Uh, business school for a while, then uh, you were with Charles Schwab for a while. When did you start with uh, Tibron Strategic Advisors?
2: So about twenty years ago. So my background is college business school, McKinsey and Company, Schwab, and then about twenty years ago started Tibron.
1: Okay, and Tibron, you are a market research firm uh, for for senior execs in the RAA space, investment management, brokerage, et cetera. Correct.
2: Uh, I would probably say it's slightly different. I would say we deliver strategic advice to CEOs and boards in the industry. I think what we spend our time doing is research. Um, I don't think we I, I, we don't look at ourselves as selling so much the research as selling the insights that come out of it. Got it.
1: Sense. So you you have a pulse of where things are
2: and where things are headed. If you have an idea, we have a PowerPoint slide that's how <laughs> I <think> about
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been to one of your workshops, uh, one of your uh, Tiburon Strategic Advisor uh, get-togethers, and I have seen some powerpoints there.
2: <laughs> what uh, a few hun- a few <laughs> hundred per hour. So you've
0: been in the business uh, quarter century
1: or whatnot, probably about the same amount of time as uh, myself and Mr. McLean.
2: What is what do you
1: think? Some of the most profound changes that you've seen in the delivery of financial advice.
2: Wow, big question. I, I think probably the biggest change has been uh, there. The, the whole multi-step process of investments has got price pressure and been refined. So let's just think about that. You know, if you go back to the 70s, um, you have May Day and stock commissions are 300 bucks. and today stock commissions are four dollars, right? So commissions are effectively down to zero. And then I think the second wave was mutual funds and the the underlying product cost. And, you know, you go back to the 80s and there's 8% load funds and 250 basis point management fees and crazy things. And today, you know, ETF market is a 20 basis point market. So that's kind of gone. And I think the, the question on the horizon now is actually the advisor's fee. And so advisors have kind of settled into this nice, neat 100 basis point model that we can all do the math and calculate that. And then here come the robo-advisors and say, no, 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 that's worth 20 basis points or something. So I think you've seen kind of a reformatting of the commission business, a reformatting in the investment manager business, and now it's the financial advice business that may or may not get reformatted now. To me, that's the biggest overall change.
1: Yeah, so we've seen for um, – well, heard for a long time the fee pressures coming to the advisors, coming to the advisor – and then uh heard uh, Mark Tabersian make a statement based upon last year 2016 the f- advisory firms that had a fee change more of them increased their fee than decreased their fee um do you think that's true
2: yeah i, I don't know if that's true but i do know I, our our data would say the average fee ticked up two basis points okay. last year so i would it, it sounds directionally accurate yeah i i think advi- i think the the claim that advisors have price pressure is a somewhat made up uh, claim you know and, and i look at it for a couple of reasons number one um to to have price pressure means someone can put price pressure on you you can't just say you have price pressure you have to have some other competitor or some uh, other choice for your client that's a better deal that your client knows about and would truly consider going to. And if those factors aren't true, then there's you know, price pressure just made up. And I think for a decade it's been a made up theory. And I think the reason is advisors will defend their price and, and for the till, till the end. And what I mean by that is uh, the advisor owns the client. The advisor has the power in the equation, so he or she is more likely. To hammer down the investment management product fee real low before they're likely to cut their own fee. That is so. Right.
0: That's right. Yeah,
2: I'm going to shift from using an expensive load product to using a low cost ETF, trying to defend my one percent fee. So I think the advisors, the last one to get the price pressure. So I'm not surprised people have talked about it for a long time, but I think it's mostly talk. You know, it's, it's-
1: interesting. Even in our firm, uh, Chip, uh, our top line fee is higher today than at times in the past. Although the net cost to the
0: client is less. It's gone down significantly.
1: Yep. So maybe the two basis point increase that you referred to is was exactly the same sort of thing. We're squeezing out the other providers and Yeah. I and
2: think that's right. If you can maintain I think the average advisory fee across all accounts, all sizes, is seventy ish basis points, um, all in. Uh, for the advisor, not for the product, an underlying product by about 70 basis points. And that's the thing that's not really going down. Now, is the underlying investment manager fee going down? Sure. It's been going down for two decades. You know, the RIA world realized, hey, why do I have to use retail class years? I can use institutional class. So it wasn't necessarily indexing. It was just cheaper mutual funds underneath. And then we, then we had index funds, and now we have ETFs, and they, they can't get to one basis point fast enough right now. That's and, what it and, seems
0: and, like. And, Chip, are the, are the TAMPs feeling that price pressure? Are the advisors pushing back on the TAMPs uh, at the same time?
2: Yeah, I, I look at it the same way Pat. I think uh, you know, if you're if you're a a product company, say a mutual fund company or ETF, or you're a tamp, or you're even a technology company, a portfolio management software yeah. or, or some egg, all of you are one step removed from the client. Yeah. And so the advisor is going to defend his fee and hammer all of those guys down first. Yeah. So I think it's just that's how business works. It's not an advisory thing. It's how the world works. Yeah, The the, The guy who owns the the client client. defends his fee. That's how it works. Yeah.
1: And what threat do you see the robo for this model?
2: I I think the the, the robo threat, I think, is interesting because I think it it could be a threat, or frankly, advisors could turn around a little bit and make it a positive for themselves if they wanted to. But I I think the threat, let's just answer your question literally, the threat is that all advisor clients – uh, come to believe that, well, money management's only worth 25 basis points. And, and they perceive you or all you are as a money manager, and therefore you're only worth 25 basis then points.
1: Then you're dead. That
2: would be the definition of the threat. Now, do I think that Will and or should happen? I think, frankly, some advisors that probably should happen because I don't think they do much beyond picking some no-load funds and going on down the road. And and if that's all you do, then maybe that is only worth twenty-five basis points. But I think the the more realistic threat is: should you add more technology to your own offerings? How how do you think about delivering? you know, better financial planning above and beyond investment management. How do you deliver better financial planning? How do you deploy technology to drive down the costs inside? I think that's the threat slash maybe it's really an opportunity, but the threat would be that all these clients leave and go to robos, probably not realistic threat.
1: And is the typical advisor doing much financial planning?
2: I I think that's the problem. I think, um, I think a lot of advisors, as the stock market roars ahead, kind of don't do much financial planning, and they really become investment advisors, and everyone likes to call themselves a financial advisor, a financial planner. These are fancy terms that imply something broader than investments, but I think some advisors get a little lazy, and all they are doing is investment advice, and I think at the end of the day, there's numerous studies, Vanguard, Morningstar, InvestNet, all have studies out there saying the value of the advisor is 300 basis points or 200 50 basis points or something. But it's not in their great investment prowess. It's in the financial planning that that shakes out. Yeah, if we
0: go, Chip, if you go out 20 years, I envision a world where actually what it is is robo-assisted financial planning, essentially. 20 years,
2: maybe. Ten years, three years. yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I might give you three or five. I, I actually think. I mean, if you want to uh, call out a specific example, I thought Betterment, Betterment Institutional, or Betterment for Advisors—I think that's what it's called—was yeah. a really interesting decision. It, it could be effectively. And I'm not blowing Betterment's horn. I don't have any interest in them. But but why wouldn't we all just manage? The cheapest, most prolific, easiest way we can let's call that Betterment. It's 25 basis points, and then add all our value in financial planning. And that could be episodic planning. It could be my kid has I got to plan for college or my estate or help me with my taxes or whatever. Yeah, and and, and that's where some way bigger number than 25 basis points. But maybe the internal nut starts all looking the same. It yeah. starts looking like a, a 25 basis points for just narrowly managing money. And if that's all you need, then go to Betterment or. Go Go to Schwab or go to somewhere where they'll do just that. And if you need something much bigger, hey, come here. I'll probably do something very similar, but then I'll do a whole bunch of more important stuff layered on top of it. Yes,
0: assuming that the, that the uh, financial advice can get to that level.
2: And 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 I, I I don't know if the question was meant to be skeptical, but I read some skepticism <laughs> into it, and I, I actually think there's a lot of advisors who don't do much more, and, yeah. and I think that's unfortunate because yeah. their clients may not be getting the most value they could.
0: That's you know? there was skepticism in there, yeah,
2: uh, Chip. <laughs> shocking. <laughs>
1: uh, we've also seen an increase in uh, M and A in the advisory space. Um, each year seems to have a few more deals. Is this something that we're going to see explode over the next? Five years, or kind of stay at the same pace.
2: I, 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 Scott, I would I would predict uh, a substantial increase from a very small base. So, you know, in our in our math, there's about 400 transactions per year. 400. Uh, which is de minimis. If you actually think about, there's about 300,000 financial advisors in America today, 400 transactions. I I, I have a hard time calling that a trend. Uh, (laughs) That's a a microscopic event is what that is, right? So about 400 transactions a year, 300,000 advisors. You know, could the 400 become 800 or even 5,000 transactions a year? Sure. Because, you know, one, advisors are aging just like their baby boomer clients, and they're going to need succession plans. Uh, number two, I think there's a lot of networks of advisors growing out there. I mean, Anson McLean could be one of these, but, you know, Mercer's out there buying, the mutual fund store's out there buying. Uh, et cetera. United Capital, they're all all out there buying. And so there's a bunch of acquisition opportunities and there's an aging advisor force. Put those two things together, there's going to be more transactions, not fewer going forward. But is it going to be a huge number? I don't know. It's measured in hundreds today, not even thousands.
1: And for these aging advisors, uh, I think some of them, although they have good intentions for uh, some sort of succession planning, I think it's, for some of it's maybe just more profitable just to kind of retire in seat.
0: Yeah, age in place.
2: I I think that's right. And I actually think there's a lot of varieties of age in place that actually may play themselves out. So there could be... You know, I just kind of stop going to work and see how long it takes my clients to figure out I'm not here anymore.
0: Okay. <laughs> I've I have seen that, Chip. I have seen that's,
2: that. That's a popular model out there. <laughs> it is. But, but but there's the bring on a young person. There's sell off some portion of my book. I think there's a lot of varieties of downsize and just ride out my business for the next couple of decades, you know? And I think there's nothing wrong with that except the client doesn't have a succession plan. And I think at some point we should turn that lens around and go, am I doing the right thing for my client by not having a solution here? And I I think that's, you know, periodically we talk about a mandate for that regulatory mandate for a succession plan. And I think you got to think about that if you're Client's getting elderly, and you're, you're hanging on to them, and you're not introducing a junior advisor or whatever. And, you know, the day you go, no one actually knows the guy. Well, geez, how, how good a job do you do for him? Well, you, I you mean, know,
0: and- Chip, we actually use that internally when we're talking to uh, prospective clients uh, about w- whether your advisor's here or not here. Y- y- your service will continue uninterrupted regardless of I think of even happens.
1: a bigger point, Chip, than someone dying – it's the fact that they're, like you said, they just don't show up for work anymore. And yep. they're, they're they're working three, three days a, a month, and all it is is responding. They're not proactive in any planning. They're not doing any real planning anymore. They're just uh, collecting the fee or the 12 b ones or whatever they were getting.
2: I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a scary way to think about it, and I think that's wrong for clients. And I think at some point there should be solutions for that model so that doesn't happen to you know,
0: people. They'll wrap that all up in the DOL rule, Chip. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Let's get it all fixed, yeah.
0: <laughs> all one big, put a big bow on it,
2: fly right through. It'll be
1: improved about 10 years from now. Got it. <laughs> It'll fly it right this, through. Will this industry continue to be a little mom-and-pop cottage industry?
2: You know, I think it's a good question, Scott, because I think, I think there's competing forces out there. And so every time I read a journalist article or see a conference speaker, I kind of giggle because they take one angle or the other, and they don't acknowledge the other side. So I would say it's a more balanced view. The answer to your question is a balanced view. On one side, You got the United Capitals and the Mercers out there buying up advisors, and you got big organic plays like Fisher and Edelman, you know, just trying to build a nationwide business. And those firms will certainly put pressure on the small mom and pop guy, right? On the flip side, there's great technology out there. Pat, you referred to the the turnkey asset management programs, the TAMPS. You know, there's you can you can effectively run a 30, 50, 70 million dollar advisory business, relatively profitable in most parts of the country today. And so I I think technology is allowing the small mom and pop to exist where consolidation is actually challenging them to exist. So, you know, where are we in five or 10 years? My guess, we still have a lot of mom and pops, but I could be wrong. And a lot of medium
0: ones as well. That's a that's a good point, Chip. But so where the medium ones shake out the regional players.
2: Depends what how big a region uh, a medium is so so I think I think if you play this out five years from now let's just have a, a, a timeline five years from now I bet there are 20 RIA firms that can claim to be nationwide in five years from today um, meaning they've got you know 20 30 40 offices they might have acquired them they might have grown them but yeah you know, I, I picture maybe 25 uh, years out I picture maybe 20 RIA firms with some claim on being a nationwide firm.
1: And, well, so will they be, I shouldn't say real firms, because, for example, Edelman's got a, a model that's similar in every office you go to, right? So, And a great model. Yeah, I think he's pretty much across the country, and a consumer's going to have a similar experience
0: regardless of where they go. And he's got a client acquisition Str- strategy. strategy and everything But some of these other firms are more of uh, just to hang under our banner, but operate any way you want, other than the the, than the window dressing. Correct?
2: Yep, I think that's right, and and I think so. I would have said it exactly the same way. I put it in different order. I think what the Edelmans have is they have a lead generation model, and they have a consistent client service model. And I think those are the winning firms. Those firms that have those two things will get the highest multiples when they go to sell. They will be the most coveted firms. They will win ultimately. That said, there's a different model out there, which is the focus financial partners model, the high tower model, et cetera, which is we're just gonna put a whole bunch of firms under one umbrella Maybe share some back office things, some back office expenses, but we're going to be a lot bigger collectively. We're still going public, and we're still going to make a lot more money than we would have been. We would have, would have been our valuation independently. Collectively, we're worth a lot more than we are independently. It's not quite the same as an organic growth story with a lead gen and a consistent client service model. But I think both models will exist five years out. Got it.
1: Yes, one. I know one of the things I th- think about is currently today in most of the national, let's let's see, even the wirehouse firms. If I had a friend in St. Louis and I said, well, why don't you go talk to Merrill Lynch? I have no idea what kind of (laughs) – it would be the luck of the advisor he talked to there, right? Yep. What kind of service he's going to get. He might have a great financial planner, do a good plan,
0: put together a nice portfolio. But the assumption is if he went to a Nettleman or Financial Engines or even Fisher – You'd know it would be a consistent experience, be it good or be it bad.
2: Yes. I think that's right, and, and and I would say I would say that's not specific to brokers versus RIA's because in the RIA world, you have the same, same thing. thing. I mean, h- how do you send a guy to Hightower? you same know, thing. It's really seventy different advisors around the country running their own shops, you know. Yeah. Or how do you send a guy to uh, uh, Mercer or um, or Focus Financial Partners, which owns I don't know whatever forty firms or something like that. I don't even know where I actually sent the guy. <laughs> I sent him to some subsidiary of theirs that ne- doesn't necessarily do it the house way. So I think that's a that, that's why those firms will get lower multiples. That's why those firms will grow slower, et cetera. But they still get a size multiple in the public market. But, so you know, they run to go public is what they do, the, the high towers in focus, because Ch- they but, want that big stock multiple.
0: But Chip, over the last month or two, we've seen some fairly large defections from those groups of Wirehouses that have rolled in and then rolled back out once they realized there was very little value add.
2: Mm, so I think you're talking about high Hightower specifically. Yeah, correct. That's when I've seen any stuff. But I also – I don't know that that's why I think they left. I think they left because they didn't go public.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. Got I
2: think it. those guys were betting on a one, two, three-year public play. I'm going to sell my business into this take some of your high tower stock, you're going to go public, and I'm going to get rich. Okay. Oh, you're not going public? Well, maybe I'm better off on my own now. You All know? Right. I, I think that's more of what happened. I don't think those guys were trying to integrate. I, I, that, that, that'd that be different than my view of what they were expecting.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for that.
1: Kind of a different angle here. We look at uh, the, uh, the, the, the major custodians control the vast majority of the assets. Schwab, Fidelity, TD, Pershing to some extent. Um there's been a couple of s- stories of some advisors saying i'm a, i'm going to look for some smaller into, more independent type custodians ones that um don't 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 market to my same clients do you, do you think the big custodians have any threat for some of these smaller ones coming along and taking some market share
2: um yes and no i think it's uh, it's a bit like the avis uh, we try harder strategy um, I, I think the second-tier, and that's a little unfair, but I'll, I'll say second-tier custodians, so Trust Company of America, uh, Royal Bank yeah. of Canada, Shareholder Services Group, et cetera, these are great custodians. And for many, many advisors, it's the right place. And frankly, a lot of them don't have minimums. They'll take a guy with $4 million of client money and you know, off off to the race as you go. Those firms are going to do extraordinarily well. The second-tier custodians will do very well. Um that said, if I'm Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, am I feeling real threatened? Nah, you know. <laughs> yeah, my, my, just let them go, my, right? Yeah, my custodian book of business is growing by you know billions of dollars every year. You know, uh, those firms, you know, they only have a few billion dollars. So are they picking me off? You know, little pieces of my business. Yeah, of course they are. But you know, Schwab has something north of a trillion dollars of custody for RIAs. These firms have single-digit billions. You know, we're yeah. talking about radically different numbers. So will those firms announce big scores and big wins? Absolutely. You know, but will they steal Schwab's 7,000 RIAs? No time. Yeah,
0: it's not coming up in the corporate boardroom very often that these guys are a threat.
2: Mm, I don't think so, you know. But that that and let, again. let let's say the affirmative. I think they are good custodians. I think they are good offerings, and I think they will grow. You know, it yeah. just means they might grow from five to twenty-five to fifty billion. While Schwab will have one point four trillion at that point. You know.
1: So you've been uh, managing partner of Tiburon for roughly twenty years, let's, of
0: which we've been a
2: client for a long time. Yes, we have been. Uh, one of my favorite clients. <laughs> oh, chip, chip, chip.
0: <laughs> it warms my soul. Yeah. All right. So, let's
1: <laughs> let's let's assume that you woke up tomorrow and said, "I'm I, I just want to I need a major change in my life and you decided to become an RA Gonna leave behind this great business that you built yourself. <laughs> you have to
0: move away or from. Let's put it out. <laughs> you gotta move away from Tiburon, California, to Sacramento, to middle of Iowa. <laughs> Nothing here, but
1: we're close to lots of things. <laughs> there
0: so, you go. Okay, <laughs> so you have to move to Sacramento.
1: Isn't, Sacramento's near Iowa? Isn't it? <laughs> we, we're near everything. <laughs> Nothing here, but we're. It's everything's in a short. You drive. can
0: drive four hours to get to someplace nice if you're from Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> so, you decide to open an R.A. Uh, what would your focus be
1: based upon all the data you've seen, all the people you've talked to, what would your focus be and what would your offering be to your clients? Um, I
2: think my focus would, again, first of all, I wouldn't do this. Uh, Second of all, uh, we're talking about starting a business that we want to build for whatever a decade or two after that. I I would go after a younger clientele base because, again, I'd be thinking about the future, not the current. Um, I'd go after them with a technology-centric offering and heavily episodic planning. So I I look at um, today's generation of um, younger investors who've gone to college, made some money, but frankly they have more debt than they have investable assets today. They have more questions about how to pay off my student loans, more so than they have about should I buy a certain ETF or not. Um, And I think I'd start thinking about that model. And so when I think about the hourly planning models like the Garrett Financial Network or a firm like that, or I think about what LearnVest did for women investors mm-hmm. and helping them think about, you know, pay off your debt and build a rainy day fund and all these kinds of things, I think I'd build a next-generation investor. I'd try to figure out what I think the next-generation investor looks like and build a firm for them. That's what I'd do if I was going to do this thing I'm not going to do. All
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's interesting, Chip, when you answer that? You just described my relationship with all my nieces and nephews. <laughs> it, they use technology. They're on their own, right? They don't hit our account minimums, but I show them how to use the 401ks. I do the allocations for them. I tell them how to buy term life insurance and where to buy it, how to find, fund the 529. It's highly Kinda episodic. Highly episodic. Yep. Uh, and, and, it's, and they're all in their mid-20s, early 30s. Highly episodic, and, and the technology is their problem. I just give them the advice. And by yeah. the way, the business model isn't working for me because they pay me nothing, my nieces and nephews, not a you dime.
2: Know, I, I, the challenge with the whole business model, frankly, is they still don't, even if they were going to pay even if they weren't your nieces and nephews, they still don't want to pay a lot. That'd be the problem with the business model. <laughs> yeah, that's a good figuring point. Figuring out how the heck am I actually getting paid here. You know? That's a good point. That's but, always something to
0: remember. But remember, you're living in Sacramento, so it doesn't cost as much that's to live right. here.
2: Very good, because near Iowa. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right, Yep. <laughs>
1: hey, Chip, really appreciate you taking uh, some time and joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. All you right. guys have a great day. Thank Take care, Chip.
0: You. Well, that would, uh, strategic advisors, you can go to the website, find out more. Mostly consultants to larger firms, though. Yeah, pretty much. Larger firms. Though. Interesting what he had to say about the M&A, mergers and acquisitions. It's going to happen.
1: Well, also interesting when there's 300,000 financial planners, that's... I mean, that's the—A.L. Um, Williams still isn't around, but there's still yeah. some remnant of that. There is. Yeah. Uh, the, so that's the part-timers. That includes insurance salesmen that also have uh, security. licenses. It could license. mean back office. Um, yeah. I mean, if you look at the number of registered investment advisory firms or— um, uh, IARs yeah. or RIAs. Yeah, there's not anyway. much smaller. So uh, we're, we're uh, information about uh, Hanson McLean Advisor to Advisor. Our website, advisor2advisor.com. number two, advisor.com. We'll take you there. We've got webinars, some other great information there. And uh, if you found this valuable, again, pass it on to some folks you know. We'll see you next time.
2: The contents of this
0: podcast are exclusively intended for financial professionals.